Happy 420! I'm Kai. And I'm B. And you're listening to Stone Cold Murder. Just a PSA, if you have any information to help solve a crime, you can go to crimestoppers.com to report any information anonymously. Thank you for tuning in for Season 2, Episode 1, The Chilling Case of Mr. Spool. This podcast contains material that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. How are you doing today, B? Good. How are you? Doing well. I'm super excited to be here with you recording Season 2. two. <laughs> we are going to light up a joint. How was your little break that we took? We've been away nice. for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good. Been um, living in Oklahoma. Vacays all over the place. Nice little vacays living it up. Not going to disclose where we went, but we went some great places. Yeah. He's been a badass <laughs> this summer. Doing How about you? Thing, living the life. You just got back from a little in the summer vacay. Yeah, I went to Michigan. I went there for a bridal uh, bachelorette party and it was like you know how bachelorette parties you expect to be drunk the whole time mm-hmm. no these bitches were stoners to the, the extent that I've never seen female stoners before legitimately me and my friends actually I could say her name Jenny and I went to the pot uh, to the podcast oh my god <laughs> we went the to the dispensary mind. that's actually all it where i went all summer long was the, went pod. To the podcast you know that thing that you place. know the pod it's very exclusive <laughs> no jenny and uh she picked me up from the airport and we went immediately to the dispensary and got a bunch of dabs and flour and stuff to make brownies and we were debating if we had like enough weed for the weekend. And when we all got to the little Airbnb that we rented, each girl showed up with their individual like cute little girly bags full <laughs> to the brim of just like weed and joints. They're like <laughs> leftover Ipsy bags. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Like little Ipsy bags just like Ipsy filled. knew what they were doing. They knew. They could spot if, we're, if they're looking for somebody... You know. Oh, that would be so cute. Like individual <laughs> bags with like little bowls and papers and stuff. That'd be cute. There you go, Ipsy. We got ideas for you. Sponsor us <laughs> or some shit. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah, you but can reuse the bags. Why not? Use it for weed and stuff. We yeah. had fun. And we tubed out in the lake. And they brought like joints out into the lake. And we were passing around joints. And I was hitting it, and I went to pass it to Jenny and dropped the freaking oh. joint on my tube and it got popped. a hole in my tube while I was out in the lake. So I'm just, like, <laughs> sitting on this tube with holding the joint in the air, and it's, like, and I'm just, like, deflating. I'm, like, so I take the joint. And we saved the joint, don't worry, but my little donut floaty was no more. It was, was a donut. It yeah. looked like a donut. Aww. Yeah. Were you in deep water? No. I okay. could touch, and there was just tons of seaweed crabbing my toes, and I hated it. Ooh. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it was great. We were stoned every bit of that vacation. Do you remember going out on um, <coughs> the paddle boards? Yeah. Out on the lake? Yeah, that was great. That was awesome. Wasn't there a storm that came in, though? There was maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, we wrote the little battle board together. We did. <laughs> we did. We Everybody like, else was getting crane. We're like, nah, we're just going to chill we'll be here. chilling on this paddle board. We were having a good time. We were. Next right. time we'll bring a joiner. Smoke on the battle board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've just been doing a lot of researching, working on this case, getting hella high. Honestly, I got a lot of good feedback, too, from people. That's fantastic. That, yeah, been listening. Yeah. We've got a lot of listeners from all around the world. It's freaking crazy to me. I was so excited looking at the map. Like, we've got all these European listeners Ooh. now. We had, did you say we had a list, some listeners in India? Yeah. How freaking cool is in that? In Australia. Australia. We see you guys. <laughs> we and see they you. get to hear my terrible attempt at an Australian accent. <laughs> Y'all don't hate us. It's okay. We love you. We see you. We, we appreciate you. you. Yes. Make fun of our accents. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> yes. We sound terrible, maybe. We don't know. You ready to get into this case? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cool. All right. It's not so fun or anything. Well, at least like we that. started out lighthearted. Yeah. We did. And do you feel stoned? Yes. Oh, yeah. before we get started, shout out to Matt in the booth. The booth. <laughs> Matt, 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 Matt. <laughs> <laughs> he the best not the boo <laughs> okay All right. now let's get serious alright this difficult case have you ever heard of the Mr. Cool case no or the case surrounding him at all no no I'm just now hearing about this and I've heard a lot of true crime cases yes. but Kai always be coming on here and throwing some new stuff at me like what's this I'm trying I'm trying to get the ones out there you know, mm-hmm. and I hadn't heard of this one either until I started looking into it, and it's pretty shitty, so. Oh, man. Yeah. Let me be the one to unfortunately tell you the case. All right. And we have our little smoke bell here for when we need to take a little break, so we will be ringing that when we're ready. Mr. Cruel is believed to be responsible for as many as 12 horrific and carefully planned attacks on women and children oh. in Melbourne, Australia. Oh. Yes. Okay. This is since the mid-1980s. Our story starts out August 22nd, 1987, in a quiet suburb of Lower Plenty located on the outskirts of Melbourne, Australia. A masked man known as Mr. Cruel broke into a family's home by detaching the window pane from the living room window. I hate that thought. It disgusts me. I don't want to think about anybody like just, mm. and just like getting in my yeah, window. That's terrifying. I hate it. He climbed through that window and once he was inside, he made his way directly to the parents' bedroom. Like I said, he was wearing a mask and he was holding a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. Then he woke up the sleeping partners in their bed. He forced both parents onto their stomachs and into the closet and then tied their hands and their feet. After they were secured, he walked into their seven-year-old son's bedroom, got him out of bed, and then tied him to the bed in his room. Then he said to the little boy, do you feel brave? What? Which is disgusting. He's, that's, ugh. Yeah, like I, I hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Like, that starts gross. out terrifying, disgusting. Nope. Don't, don't, don't want like anything it. to do it. It was noted, too, that the type of knot that was used to tie all the victims up was commonly seen used by sailors, or at least those who had some type of nautical experience. Some kind of nautical knot. 
use mm. for all of them. Wow. And I'm just going to use a trigger warning for this next part and honestly for the rest of the episode because it is just a, a rough one. So if it's not something you guys want to hear, maybe skip to the next episode. He found their 11-year-old daughter. And he sexually assaulted her for the next two hours. When he finished with this horrifying and disgusting attack on this poor child, he stole a blue jacket from the home and then went through the family's records. He then cut the phone lines and left. Police were called and the little girl was eventually able to tell the police that the intruder used the family's phone to call someone else during a break in attacking her. Wow. So from what she heard, he was threatening someone. Um, The man was demanding the person on the other end of the line to move their children or they would, quote unquote, be next. And he referred to this person as Bozo. Interesting. Yeah. After telling the police what happened, they checked the family's phone records, but there was no record of any call being placed whatsoever. And it would later uh, become very clear that Mr. Cruel was planting red herrings to purposely confuse investigators. Mm. And he did this throughout the case, and he would successfully throw off investigators for years because of this. So he was just bullshitting, basically, and calling nobody. He was just picking up the phone and saying crazy stuff yeah so he would so people would think he was when they do this kind of stuff it kind of makes you wonder like what other crimes were they committing before because that's like experience there dude nobody just thinks that stuff up you know yeah i'm gonna cut the phone line and to say that little thing to the son and i don't know he went directly to the parents room like super weird i was really actually shocked when you said that like that he's going straight to the parents room i was like what yeah that's weird but carefully thought out you mm-hmm. know almost like he knew the map mm-hmm. and layout of the house that's scary i don't <laughs> like it no me neither don't like it don't like it don't like it a little over a year and a half later, in December, he would attack again. So it went like a whole year before he made another attack. That we know of, though. That Who we know of. what he was doing in that time and Absolutely. Between. Yeah. It could be just like some different MO or different mm-hmm. whatever, you know? Yep. A few days after Christmas, and only a few miles from the first attack, Mr. and Mrs. Wills and their four daughters are sleeping in their home. He broke into their home wearing dark blue overalls and a dark mask like a ski mask type thing mr wills woke up dazed with a gun to his head gun to mr wills head and knife clutched in his other hand he orders both parents to get on the floor laying on their stomachs to tie up and gag them both Mm. he turned and said you're not going to be a hero are you to john wills as he did this which is also a scary comment Mm-hmm. Then he callously told them that he was only there for their money and proceeded to cut the phone lines before making his way through the rest of the home. Which, could you imagine being tied up by someone and then being like, oh, I'm only here for the money, and then cutting the phone cord? And then he goes and Dude, you would know. Kids. Dude, you would know right Ugh. away that that's not, that, yeah. that's not what you're there for. No. No. Mm-mm. I couldn't imagine. He made his way to the bedroom where all four of the Will's children slept. When he got into the girl's room, he called out for 10-year-old Sharon Wills. He called her by name as he woke her up what? and blindfolded and gagged her. Yeah, called her by name. 
How does this person know them? I don't know. I hate it. I literally hate it. Which I hate all these cases. But yeah. I, like some of these are just like, ew, very creepy. And it's like an invasion of privacy. Like a complete invasion don't like of it. privacy. And just unnerving. So he woke her up, blindfolded, and gagged her. He grabbed some of the child's clothing and left with Sharon the next morning. So he just hung out there all night? I guess so. Which is yucky, too. All of it is just I don't. Disturbing. This is just so odd. It's not like any other case I've heard before. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I let you can finish what you were saying. No, you're fine. So John Wills, he's the father, was eventually able to get himself free. And he ran straight to the neighbor's house to call for help. But by this time, the intruder and his daughter were gone. The Wills family described the man as a man with no accent, well-spoken, fluent in English. When he says no accent, are we talking, did he have an Australian accent? Yeah. So it's suggesting that he's Australian. Okay. So he would have an accent to us, but not to those who live Well, I didn't even know if maybe he had an English accent. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it does say that it was suggesting that he was Australian. Okay. Because of this. 18 hours after the initial abduction, a woman found Sharon Wills standing on the street corner dressed in a green trash bag just after midnight. She was reunited with her family and then later interviewed by police. She was blindfolded during the the attack, so she wasn't able to give a description of the man. Sharon did see a wooden tripod at the foot of the bed she was held in, so it was thought that the girls may have been recorded during their attacks. Ugh. This just gets, gets grosser it's and awful. grosser. Ugh. It's awful. She told police she heard planes flying where she was held, like maybe over top of her, but she could distinctly hear them flying over her as she was in captivity there. She was given a thorough bath, completely washed, and he cut her fingernails and her toenails short. He brushed and flossed her teeth before lacing them. This attack was quickly tied to the first attack that took place the year before. Now, at this point, this area is starting to get increasingly worried about the attacks that are happening in this town. And we're going to take a smoke break. We're back. All right. Let's get back into the story. I just want to let everyone know that that, you know, Ty's like, we're going on a smoke break, but I'm thinking about a snack break because... Last season, I got in trouble for eating snacks during the <laughs> podcast. You were crunching on some chips in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm hating on it, but they were delicious. All right, let's get back into it. Did you enjoy your snack? It was excellent. Good. Would you snack on a variety of things? Um, but my favorite, and I'm still working on it. Is a Jolly Rancher lollipop from Perry. Thank you, Perry. I know how you are. I appreciate you and the dopamine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So on July 3rd, 1990, in a suburb of Canterbury, Victoria, this is west of the second attack and south of where the first attack. On this night, Brian and Rosemary Lannis were attending a party, and they left their two daughters home alone. Their daughters were 15-year-old Fiona and 13-year-old Nicola. The 
Lena's family were a relatively well-off family from England. They were renting a home in a very nice neighborhood, and honestly, saying nice probably downplays this place a little bit. It was described as a distinguished neighborhood that was home to Australian politicians and public officials, and this gave most people living here the illusion of a secure place to Mm -hmm. live in. But in reality, most of us know here on the pod and understand that bad shit can happen anywhere. Nowhere is safe. Nowhere is safe. There are great people in this world, but there are many monsters that walk among us. And sometimes you can't predict what people will do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There will always be good and evil, and evil and good, and you unfortunately cannot have one without the other. That brings us to Fiona and Nicola. We're woken up by the masked man, armed with his gun and knife, yelling orders to the girls. He instructed Nicola to go into the other room, to pick up her school uniform while Fiona was tied in the bed. And she went to like a Presbyterian. That's so specific school. again that he's like, it's go disgusting. get your uniform. So he's he been watching exactly. her. Yeah. He knew, he's like watching all of these people. Ugh. Which it's terrifying to have someone break into your house in general, but it's also like, it brings another, like I already said this, but it brings that extra level yeah yeah, violation yeah violation and like uneasiness by like having someone stake out your every move and know these types of intimate details you know know your name don't know your school uniform yeah that's awful obviously knew her parents weren't going to be there you know what i mean really makes you wonder if this was someone that worked for the school Mm -hmm. or worked for the parents you know Interfering. Sorry. Name, no. Am I saying it smart. too soon? <laughs> no, you're just smart. That they um they think maybe school. None of these people are related, right? Mm-mm. Okay. No. That was just. Yeah. He told Fiona that her father would need to pay him twenty five thousand dollars for her sister's return. Oh, now he's asking for money. Yeah. And then he left with Nicola in the family's rental car, which he parked, which was parked in the driveway. Twenty minutes after the abduction took place. Brian and Rosemary returned back home, where they found Fiona tied up to her bed with the ransom message about the $25,000. A few days later, Nicola was dropped off not far from her home. She was fully dressed, wrapped in a blanket, and still blindfolded. She was bathed, and the nails were trimmed, her teeth were brushed, just like the previous victim had been. She was transported to the drop-off location in a trash bag, Assumed to keep the DNA from getting in his car. Like entirely in the trash bag? Or like just her head out? I That's don't know. so weird. I, all of it is just very. Oh yeah. It and gives that doesn't me, like, work like that with DNA. Dude, sorry. It gives me anxiety to think about having to be blindfolded and also be like be sitting in someone's car in a trash bag. Yeah. Like Ugh. even if it wasn't over my head, just having it oh. like up to my neck. No. Mm-mm. Like those poncho things that you have to wear in the rain. Mm-hmm. I don't like those already, but like a trash. Ugh. Terrible. I just hate it. It's just like torture on top of the already torture that he gave these victims, you know? Yeah. When she was sure that the man had driven away, she removed the blindfold and made her way to a nearby house. There she was able to call home just after two in the morning. Nicola was able to offer investigators some details that would be vital to the investigation. She told them her abductor drove about half a mile down the road, parked, and then transferred 
her to another vehicle. She was able to provide a rough estimate of the man's height, which was about five foot eight, and that she thought the suspect possibly had reddish brown hair. During her time in captivity, she was forced to lay down into a neck brace contraption that was secured to the bed, restraining her while she was being abused. She said that she heard him speaking aloud to another person, but that she never heard another person respond. Uh, uh, Mind games again. I know, it's awful. He watched the Linus family press conference with Nicola on TV and then talked to her about it. He said to her, you think you're worth $25,000? Like, the comments he makes is just, like, so calloused. So the man told Nicola, you will be taken to a hospital. They will test you. You will be examined by a police surgeon. They will be looking for evidence to link you to me, and they won't find me. Nicola also told investigators that she heard a low-flying aircraft while she was in the home. Because of this, it was thought that the suspect lived in the surrounding vicinity of the Tellermarine Airport, and more than likely in the direct flight path. An investigation into flights operating that day determined the likely location of the property as under either the Tellermarine East-West or North-South flight path. David Spring, an investigator on the case, said that based on how loud the planes were, they might have been just 400 meters above the house. A few months after Nicola's attack, the Lennis family moved back to England. (laughs) And we're back from our smoked snack break. All right. This is the final victim on this case. This is on April 13th. 1991, Mr. Krull again broke into the home of John and, or he didn't again break into their house, but he broke into Into the house house again. Again, yes. (laughs) This was the home of John and Phyllis Chan. They lived in an affluent neighborhood in Temple's Tau district of Victoria. So he knows a lot of affluent people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That night, their 13-year-old daughter, Carmen, Um, was watching over her two younger siblings. And at 8.40 that evening, Carmen and one of her sisters were watching a movie, and they decided to make a little snack to go with it. The sisters went into the kitchen to make some food, and when they went in there, they were startled by a man in a mask and in a gray tracksuit. Does anyone know, like, what this... Well, I know the mask has been, like, a ski mask. Dude, look it it up. Look it up right now. It's so scary. Google it. I want you to what look at the mask. What am I saying, Mr. Cruel? Yeah, you'll find that you just type in Mr. Cruel. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to do it to you, but you asked. It's not It's going to haunt my dream. Yeah, I don't like the mask at all. I saw Ew. it and I was like, ew. Ew. Is it like sewn? Or it something? looks like staples almost. Hate him. <laughs> hate him. Me too. I hate him too. Isn't that scary? Can you imagine seeing that when you wake up over in your kitchen? I don't like it. Mm-mm, nope. So the sisters went into the kitchen to make some food, and they were startled by a man in a mask in a gray tracksuit. That would have scared the living daylights out of me if that Absolutely. was in my kitchen. Dude, it, it's the thing of nightmares, truly and honestly. 
Not only just to have, like, an intruder in your house, but that fucker? No way. He said to the girls, I only want your money. He then forces the two younger siblings into Carmen's wardrobe and then told them he needed Carmen by herself to show him where the money was. He then pushed the bed in front of the closet and then locked the two younger siblings in the closet as he abducted Carmen. A few minutes later, the two frightened sisters were able to work together to push open the wardrobe doors and immediately called their father at the family restaurant. On April 24th, 1991, the FBI provided the following profile for Mr. Cool to Victoria Police based on their research and investigation experience in similar cases. He may reside or work in approximately two his first and last known attacks. He is likely to be employed or involved with a school due to the use of school uniforms and timing in school holidays. Though the attack and abduction of Nicola Lanis was not during Victorian school holidays, so that was the only one. He will appear genuinely dedicated to students, and this may have been recognized with awards, which seem to make him above suspicion. He will have kept homemade pornography, including of his victims. He is a functional individual with steady employment, is generally regarded as a good neighbor, polite, quiet, somewhat introverted, and may be involved in community projects. If he has a partner, they will have been away during the time of his attacks and will know of his sexual dysfunction. Use of pornography in school, uniforms, etc. Oh, so he... Mm -hmm. Those around him may have noticed changes in behavior during and after the attacks, including uncharacteristic use of alcohol, interest in religion, missing work, or appearing distant and preoccupied. The FBI profile was criticized by forensic pathologists Ian Joblin and other local experts as simplistic and potentially off-target at the time of its public release in 1992. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. Shortly after the abduction, investigators found a note written slash painted in large, bold letters on Phyllis Chan's Toyota Camry, and it read, Payback Asian Drug Dealer. More, more to come. Which is fucking lame that someone wrote that, because I don't think it was the attacker for one. Just picking on well, her. it was the attacker, but like I just feel like they just did it in a like to be racist. Yeah, you know what I mean. I didn't mean it wasn't the attacker. I just meant it was just like a plain yeah. way to be ugly. You know, yeah. basically didn't even have anything to. Yeah, yeah. just being ugly. You know. Mm-hmm. But after combing through John Chan's life and background, this provided to be just another way the man tried to throw off investigators. They're trying to make it look like the dad was in some kind yeah. of drug ring. Drug money or something stupid, you know? Yeah. The chance posted an encrypted letter in the local paper using a cipher that Carmen Chan would have been able to decrypt, which is super smart. Mm-hmm. They offered a $300,000 ransom in exchange for the safe return of their daughter. Carmen Chan's abduction triggered one of the largest manhunts in Australia's history, known as Operation Spectrum. It was a multi-million dollar search and tens of thousands of policemen hours alongside of the many thousand 
thousands of more investigator hours. Unlike his other victims, Carmen was never dropped off or returned to her parents. And on April 9th, 1992, about a year after Carmen's abduction, a decomposed skeleton was found by a man walking his dog in the area of Thompson Town. This would later be determined to be the body of young Carmen Chan. It's so sad. I know. Her autopsy revealed that Carmen Chan had been shot three times in the head, execution style, believed to be done not long after her abduction. Theories have come up as to why her abductor murdered Carmen when he released all of the other victims. But Carmen's mother theorizes that because her daughter was stubborn, she would have fought against her attacker. She likely learned too much about him for him to let her go. Operation Spectrum continued for the next few years to search for Carmen's murderer. A 40-member task force investigated over 27,000 potential suspects, collected over tens of thousands of tips from public, and searched over 30,000 houses in hopes of turning over a single clue. They never did, and Spectrum was eventually shelved for good in 1994 with any potential leads on the case. Yeah. And this is just a side note for me, but I do feel like three years is a very, <laughs> is not a very long time to be working on a case before shelving it for good. Yeah. I'm Am I crazy? Agree. No. Because <laughs> there's a lot of cases that they spend 20, 30 Dude, years on it. Like the St. Louis, Louis Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. They still be working on that or like the boy in the box. But they said shelved for good in 1994. And her yeah, body was wasn't. found in 1992. Crazy. I don't know. I just felt like that was We very saw short. people trying to solve the John Benet Ramsey case, and that's what, 27 years, something like that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow, I'm surprised that they would want to give up on it so quickly. I know. And. 2022, long after the operations task force shelved the case, reports surfaced that an unidentified criminal had come forward 20 years earlier and told detectives that he knew who Mr. Pruel was. The man claimed that the culprit was a known criminal named Norman Luing Lee, whose house supposedly matched what the victim said about Mr. Pruel's house. Mm. But nothing came of this man's claim ever. An investigator named Mike King went public in 2022 with the theory that Mr. Krull's attacks were targeted to the area that had electrical substations nearby, suggesting that the culprit may have worked as a utility worker. But again, nothing came of this theory either. Unfortunately, the victim's accounts of what Mr. Krull looked like were not consistent. So it was hard to even make a sketch or a comparison for anything to look for, you know? And to this day, Mr. Krull has never been identified. But we do know a few things about him. He might have had forensic knowledge because he went to great lengths to avoid leaving behind forensic evidence that detectives could have used to catch him. He bathed the two victims and wiped down surfaces to remove fingerprints, transported victims in garbage bags, made victims brush teeth and clean nails, left no DNA behind at the crime scenes or on the victims. The victims described his voice as deep and gruff and uneducated 
It was thought that he had previous criminal experience because he was able to control multiple adult victims in the Willis and Lauer Plenty cases. He cut phone lines. He had weapons and handcuffs. Carried a kit containing housebreaking implements and restraints. There is evidence of planning that suggests he spent time conducting research and surveillance on his victims. And then we have a list of several distinctive items he stole from the victims, including an Ecuadorian-style shirt, a parka with fake fur collar on it, Hmm. a gold diamond engagement ring with the number 4132 stamped inside, Rosemary Linus driver's license, a Medicare card and a credit card, a Kindone beach bag, a PLC summer uniform, tracksuit pants, and a school jumper, and a a Melbourne football club beanie. Okay. So, yeah, that's basically all we know about him, which is not very much, unfortunately. Mm Mm-mm. But before we get into our final thoughts on this case, uh, let's go ahead and talk about Carmen. Who was Carmen Chan? Born November 5th, 1977 in Banyul, I hope I'm saying that right, Australia, to parents John and Phyllis Chan, who had separately migrated from Hong Kong to Melbourne the year prior to her birth. Her parents became engaged shortly after their arrival in Australia when both were in their early 20s. Both parents were extremely hard workers, and by the time Carmen entered her teenage years, the Chan family owned and operated two popular Chinese restaurants, both parents regularly working up to 18 hours per day. Carmen was the eldest of three daughters. Her younger sisters were Carly and Karen. All three sisters received a private education at the prestigious Presbyterian Ladies College and her parents ensured all three of their daughters were fluent in both Chinese and English. By 1991, Carmen was a year eight student at Presbyterian Ladies College, where she was known as a bright and diligent student with ambitions to become a barrister. A barrister is a lawyer who represents a litigant as the advocate before a court. On the morning of April 13, 1991, Carmen attended her regular Saturday tennis lessons where she had begun lessons the previous year. Her mother later drove her daughter to the Bowling Plaza Shopping Center where the two ate breakfast. That afternoon, friends of the family drove Carmen and her sisters to the Lower Plenty Chinese restaurant their parents operated where the sisters ate an afternoon meal with their mother before an employee drove the sisters home at approximately 6.30 p.m. The three sisters spent approximately one hour at home with their father before he left to attend business at the restaurant. According to Carly and Karen, their sister then read stories to them before all three sisters watched a television special about Marilyn Monroe in a family bedroom. Then they were attacked while going to make a snack in the kitchen. Carmen was a young, beautiful, caring, and motivated girl who had her whole life ahead of her. She deserved respect and to live her life. Final thoughts on the case, guys? B? I mean, you definitely think he had to know them. Oh, absolutely. All of these girls. Or at least, like, yeah. Some kind of knowledge. He had some kind of connection to their schools. Sadly. I think, also, he probably knew the victims. 
he also had some kind of weird thing about children, obviously, so. In uniforms, too, to just make it creepier. Gross. Disgusting. If you're still alive, Mr. Cruel, go fuck yourself. We don't like you. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Still alive. That wasn't long ago. This was wild, and I've never heard this case. No. And I'm kind of sad that there's not more awareness of it. So I know. thank you again for bringing these cases to light You're welcome. on the pod. Thank you for being my bestest co-host. Thank you for having me. <sighs> thank you for being my child. <laughs> And thank you to all the listeners for listening. Yes. Shout out to the Melbourne, Australia listener that we have. We see you. And this, this, thank you. This is for you. Yeah. Sorry, it was a shitty case. Oh, also, if you like what you're hearing in your ear holes with this whole podcast thing, maybe you could go to our Spotify or wherever you listen and give us a nice little rating. Five we would stars. love a five star rating. That would be. Really cool. And maybe leave us a little comment, too. We like that, too. We really want to listen. Even better. And hear from you. Mm-hmm. So, visit us on our Spotify. And if you know of any great cold cases you want us to look into, yeah, give us, us a little know. shout out. Give us a shout out. Or follow us on the Instagram or the TikTok. We'll link the link below in the show notes and whatnot. All right. Until next time. Stay high. Stay safe. And thanks for listening. Bye.